Blog Talk Radio. Talk Radio, and I'm Marcia Joyner, host of Betrayed by Hospice, brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower Summit and our producer, Marty Oakley. As the promotional stated, tonight our program is going to be a little bit different as we won't be focusing specifically on hospice, but we will to continue to focus on protecting unsuspecting people, which is what all of the blog talk programs that Marty personally hosts and sponsors. Guardianship of the unsuspecting, robbing them of their life savings, and when the coffers are dry, it's time for hospice to come in to hasten their death. We have guests on that point out what is happening so you are aware and you should always verify before trusting so you are prepared to deal with the potential dangers and take whatever action you deem appropriate for you. Artificial intelligence in healthcare has gained significant traction during the pandemic, from combing scientific papers on coronaviruses to searching CT scans for COVID-19 symptoms. And in my research, it sounds promising and like it would really help people, but then that's what I thought about hospice until I experienced the raw, evil side of drugging people to an early grave. Can we really trust artificial intelligence to mine, tally, and track our medical data to determine what our future cost and what our lifespan will be? And why do we keep seeing ads trying to talk us into taking Medicare Advantage? Because it will help us. Is that why? If you're over 65 or disabled and on Medicare or Medicaid, you already have a financial target on your back. And with artificial intelligence, that might just be adding another one. Listen to our guest tonight and decide for yourself. As I do on each program, I want to quickly share some resources with you. Knowledge is power. Halovoice.org is an excellent site to acquire information on drugs used by hospice, as well as a medical document that can help protect you or your loved ones as well as other information. Their helpline number is 888-221-4256, or if you're better with letters, that's 888-221-HALO. And they're always looking for volunteers. So if you've experienced this, you know what's going on, and you want to help, please reach out to them. Michelle Youngdoers, a former hospice respiratory therapist, wrote an excellent book titled, quite appropriately, Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice. In this book, she shares real-life stories and information on what's happening behind those closed doors of hospice. It's an excellent book 
written by a warrior who advocates for the elderly and disabled and who chose the patients over the facility and its lies. You can purchase that at Amazon if you would like. Life Legal Defense Foundation has access to pro-life attorneys in most states, and they've been able to help people who are in the facilities to get out. So if you know somebody in guardianship or if they're in hospice or a hospital, you're trying to get them out, please reach out to Life Legal Defense Foundation. Euthanasia Prevention Coalition, either Canada or USA, advocates for the elderly and disabled and fights against euthanasia. Which brings me to my guest tonight, Sarah Busher. She is a retired attorney who spent her career advocating for the elderly and disabled, and she is the chair of Euthanasia Prevention Coalition USA. Last week, we had Alex Schadenberg on, who was the director of Euthanasia Prevention Coalition on the Canadian side, and he and Sarah work side by side. Um, a little bit more about Sarah, our guest tonight, is she served on Governor Tommy Thompson's task force on health care costs and managed employee benefit programs for the state of Wisconsin. She actively shares important information on other advocates group and remains active in what's coming down the pipe, working on legislative bills to advocate for the elderly. So tonight she's going to share with us what all of this artificial intelligence and the Advantage Plan is about. But as you're listening to her, please keep in mind that once hospice was a safe place that we trusted and we found out we were duped and they're euthanizing people against knowledge and consent. So I think it's safe to say that while artificial intelligence may sound promising, as the medical industry will tout, there is also another side to that poses dangers, and that's what we want you to be aware of. I've often heard we're here to help, and I can't help but think, run. Sarah, thank you for coming on tonight and sharing with us your knowledge on this about artificial intelligence and advantage plans. So I'd like to turn this over to you and let you start talking to us and sharing information. Okay. Thank you so much, Marsha, for inviting me to be on, and um, I hope I can help the people who are listening. So if you're uh, 65 or up, you probably have noticed a lot of ads on TV for extra benefits. Call and find out about those extra benefits you're entitled to, and they're um, selling Medicare Advantage plans which are usually um, health maintenance organizations or preferred provider networks. Um, So there is restrictions on who you can go to uh, to to get your medical care with those plans. So uh, some of these plans um, offer doctors who make house calls and free household help. They may call you and offer this to you after you've enrolled. And you have to stop and think, if this plan is already cheaper than regular Medicare, how can they afford to offer me free stuff and why? So I hope we're going to answer that question for you. 
you and think about how you might be targeted to receive those services. So what we're seeing is companies that offer palliative care, which is really the same as hospice care, the good hospice care, I should say, um, includes all those components, um, are now using artificial intelligence or AI to find people, and this is a quote, this is what they're looking for, people with serious illness who face heightened risks of crisis hospitalizations and preventable spending. So the idea is that if you, let's say, are supported and maintained with your serious illness um, more appropriately and in a better way, then you wouldn't need the crisis hospitalization. But unfortunately, it seems like the focus is more on preventing the spending. So Mm -hmm. what is artificial intelligence? It's just computer programs that process a lot of data to come out with rules, or they call them triggers, for certain kinds of treatment or non-treatment decisions. Um, So they use the computer to look for patterns in the health insurer's uh, databases and then use those patterns to try to find people that are going to need expensive treatment before they need it. Um, Any of you that worked with computers or had computers in your workplace um, know that they can make a lot of mistakes and they're not necessarily all that accurate because guess what? They can't think. They can only do what they're instructed to do. Um, Now, there is a company called Aspire that claims their AI can predict down to the week when a person will die. Uh, And they use their death predicting AI for in-home services. And they're the ones that offer you the free house calls, but they don't tell you why they're offering that to you. This um, company, when it started up, got $30 million in funding from Google. So big tech is involved in this. And I just saw the other day that uh, Google is launching something called Google Health, where they're going to start providing health care services. Good grief. Now this, Yeah, and Walmart is getting involved, and Amazon. Those are the three. Um, so this company is called Aspire, and it provides palliative care through Medicare Advantage plans the plans with the extra benefits. And it came up with this artificial intelligence, death-predicting algorithm, they call it, by using insurer's data, okay. Usually what they are doing, although we don't know, this is kind of a, a trade secret, so we don't know how this program works and how accurately it works, but usually... They're looking for a diagnosis of a chronic condition, like, say, congestive heart failure or COPD or something like that. Dementia, 
or neurological problems, along with frequent emergency department, hospital, or doctor visits. So that's kind of what they're looking for. Um, again, this is problematic because, again, if you ever worked with computers, you probably remember the old saying, garbage in, garbage out. So it's only as accurate as the data that you feed into it. Uh, and there is a big problem with medical records. They contain a lot of misinformation. Why? Because they have to be completed on the fly and fast and um you notice probably when you go to the doctor that they ask you a lot of questions that supposedly are answered in your medical records. And I think the reason they do that is they know that you know your your medical history more accurately than those records show. And I have kind of a horror story to share of something that happened to me personally and an error in my medical records. So... This happened, oh, I'm going to say maybe six, seven years ago, and um, they were converting their electronic medical records where I, where my doctor was at that clinic. And so when I went in for my annual checkup, they had a, a young lady there along with the nurse, and she was just pounding the keyboard, and uh, they were asking me all kinds of questions, and my answers were being reflected, you know, so they were creating this electronic health record for me. So I asked if I could have access to my record, and I think most most places you go now, you can get that. They usually offer it to you. If they do, you should definitely sign up so that you can check your records yourself. So when I checked my record, I found out they had clicked the little box that said I had dementia. So oh, I can no. immediately see, see if I have dementia, then I'm going to be targeted for certain things, right? Exactly. And so I, I wanted to get that corrected. Well, first of all, the first people I spoke to weren't sure if I had dementia or not. <laughs> You know, it's like the record says you have it. You must have it. And I'm like, no, I really don't have it. So I had quite a, had to talk to a lot of people. In the end, I had to sit with my doctor at a computer screen, and he corrected it. So he was the only one that could change it. Well, you know, it's really important, I think, for you to check your medical records and get that online access. Now, that's interesting because... Go ahead. I was going to say that's interesting because my doctor's office, gosh, 10 years ago, had said that they, you know, that I could get access to that, and I've never done that because I've always felt like if I access it, that I'm agreeing with them keeping all that data, which is ridiculous because they're going to keep the data anyway. But I've just never wanted to (laughs) participate in it because I do not believe you should have this, you know, out there accessible data for other people. You know, I don't mean other people, but other organizations, you know, your insurance company, the doctors, any other doctors you may be affiliated with to see your records 
but it's kind of dumb of me because the the data still exists and you're you're right i should uh, well and most payers whether it's medicare or medicaid or it's a health insurance company they're requiring the doctors to keep those records right right so and those records I, one, are going to exist regardless of whether you use it or not. Right, right. And on that, I just, I just want to make a comment to everybody out there. When you turn 65 is when Medicare, Medi- I don't know about, I don't really know much about Medicaid, but in, when you turn 65 is when Medicare is offered to you, and before you turn 65, they keep sending you notification, notification that you have to do it within six months, or there could be, could be a penalty for it. There is not, if you have your own health insurance, there is not a requirement that you have to sign up for Medicare. That is something that they're offering supposedly to you to help you, and as I said, you know, I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to help you. But if you have your own insurance, you do not have to become a Medicare recipient if you do not choose to do so. I, I'm not but advocating do, whether you I should or not. And I, I didn't, like, research, go back to research this, but I think if you sign up when you're first eligible, you pay a lower Part B premium than if you wait, you know, if you wait right. to sign up later. Um, but you don't have to. No, you don't have to. Right, and, and I think people are, feel um, that you have to. Yeah. So there are clinics where the doctors are, you know, they don't take the Medicare and they you pay them so much a month and... You have a lot of access to them. They follow you into the hospital and anywhere you go to make sure you get good care. Those are called concierge practices. So, um, but of course, a lot of people can't afford something like that, but uh, that does exist. And as far as Medicaid goes, um, that is only available to people who are disabled, disabled enough that they would qualify for Social Security disability, um, and uh, people who are 65 and older, and people who are on dialysis. And then it is means-tested. In other words, your income and your assets have to be below certain limits to be able to qualify for Medicaid. Mm-hmm. And that, because we've had some people that say that you have somebody in a facility, a memory care unit or um, rehab facility or something, and so you're paying for them out of pocket every single week or month, however it runs, and when you now, you have the money for that, so you're not on Medicaid. When you have exhausted your income and there is no more money for them to take, then can you go request, do you know if you can request Medicaid at that point? Yeah. Yes, you can. Okay. And there's also, um, you're allowed to keep certain assets uh, and you can still qualify for Medicaid. Um and some of this varies by state, even though it's a, well, it's a, 
a, a shared program between the federal government and the states. So, again, in Wisconsin, um, we have a pooled trust for people with disabilities <coughs> and the elderly, and you can put your money in the trust and then qualify for uh, Medicaid. But when you die, then whatever's left in there has to be used to pay Medicare back, Medicaid back, but it's at a, re, a discounted rate versus what you would pay if you were just going to private pay and spend your money down. So there's a lot of things um, involved with get qualifying for that if you're having long-term nursing home costs. Although there again, um, if you can privately pay, you have a lot more choices of places that will take you. So, you know. But that's very, very costly. Right. Yeah, it's, I yeah. think, 250 a day or something like that. It's a lot. It's a lot of money. And most people, you know, can't afford that. But, you know, I kind of... You know, you kind of look at, say, that you have someone who you don't have an option, they can't stay with, you know, a loved one, and they're in the facility. If you've spent your entire life saving your money to take care of you in your older years and you can go to a facility where they will take good care of you, then that's kind of what you've spent your money for, like long-term care, that you deserve to be treated as a human being for all the days of your life. And if that means that you wind up using all the money that you had put aside, then that's what you do. It, you know, right. giving to your loved ones an inheritance is a great thing if you can do it. But if you need that money to survive off of and live the rest of your life comfortably, then it should be for that individual person to yeah. take care of them in the rest way. of their life. Right. I always felt that way. It was their money, and they should it should be used for them. Exactly, exactly. And sadly, a lot of times, you know, some of the guests that I've spoken to, their siblings or the or their the spouse of the person who died, that person wanted the money and didn't want to spend any money towards that individual being mm-hmm. in a good facility, and they are partially responsible for the person being euthanized because they wanted that money. They didn't want it wasted, in quotes, <laughs> on that person. Well, that's not a waste if your life, the longevity, whatever you have left, is spent in a facility that's taking good care of you, you know, yeah. even though you're spending whatever money you have. But that's what right. it's there for. Right. <laughs> And the so, other I'm sorry, thing I didn't is, mean to get off the train. Oh, well, I'll just I'll keep on this tangent for just a minute more, and just say that if you go into a facility as a private pay um, resident, and you you pick a good facility that's a good fit for you and your needs, that when you run out of money and you have to switch to Medicaid you can stay in that facility. Oh, okay. They wouldn't push, they don't kick you out because you don't get as much money now? They can try to kick you out, but if you have um, an attorney or an advocate that knows the rules, they can appeal that 
and they have to keep you in the facility while that appeal is going, and you will win because okay. usually the being transferred and put in a different place is, is a health hazard to people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's not appropriate. Okay, I didn't know that. That's that's good to know. So, um, okay, so I wanted to share with the li- your listeners um, some information I've kind of dug out on the Internet about three of the companies that are using um, AI for palliative care. So... Um, the first one I met, had mentioned earlier, Aspire, it currently serves people in all 50 states virtually, you know, like over the Internet or by phone. And they offer in-home care in 33 states plus the District of Columbia. So their um, website is AspireHealthCare, that's all one word, dot com. And you can look there to see if they're, you know, physically present in your state. Because then you might want to try to find out more if you were thinking about signing up for one of these Medicare Advantage plans, whether that plan contracts with Aspire um, for their palliative care services. So... Here's how the people that founded Aspire described how it works um, in articles that were published mostly in Forbes magazine. The first thing is they don't rely on referrals from primary care physicians. Instead, they use their artificial intelligence to identify people that they think could benefit from their services, we'll say it that way, and they contact those people directly, and about 85% of them sign up, you know, because they're offering them free house calls, free in-home support, and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, They do not mention the word palliative, and they do not mention life expectancy, (laughs) And they are don't tell the people that Aspire's goal is to reduce costs by offsetting treatment against life expectancies, and that's a quote. They send a team into the home, and they spend a lot of time with the person and their family to build trust. And once they they build that trust relationship, then they guide the patient and family through what they call difficult treatment choices. And so a key part of the program is discussing what treatments the person wants or doesn't want or should want or shouldn't want. I'm saying that. And or what costs to, too much money. Right, Exactly. The idea Mm -hmm. is to prevent patients who have only a short time to live, again, according to their AI, from undergoing unpleasant and unnecessary treatments. 
They claim to save thousands per patient by reducing hospitalizations. Now, so that's kind of scary, I think. It is. And it's also not exactly honest, in my opinion. Um, so is this service... Go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, <laughs> I was just going to say that some issues that people have raised is, you know, do we as people who have health care records that um, our health insurer has because we contracted with them to pay for our health care, um, are those our records? Do we have privacy rights in those records? Do we have control over who uses those records and how they use them and what they use them for? Are, are, if they're using our records um, to develop the AI or they're using the AI to, to find us and, and offer us services, you know, are we research subjects? Do we have a right to inform consent? about this whole process and being involved in this? Um, do we have a right to have information disclosed to us about how our medical care is being evaluated or determined by these computer programs? So, you know, there's a lot of issues there. But I don't think anyone's really looking at it. Now, another because one... Because they're not aware. Um, right, right. Another one that's similar to Aspire is called Turnkey. And, oh, I should go back. Just one other thing about Aspire. As, the Aspire company um, was sold by the two guys that founded it to Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield. So that company is now owned by Anthem. So and most they are of the huge. Anthem, right. Most of the Anthem Medicare Advantage plans probably offer Aspire. But they also contract with other insurers. There's another one that does something similar called Turnkey, and that has been bought by something called CareCentrix recently. This one ties together home care, medical supplies and equipment, palliative care, and hospice for Medicare Advantage plans and contracts with insurers. They do say that they rely on referrals from the primary care physician, but at least they're not going around the primary care physician according to what they say. But they do allow for self-referrals. And they brag about cost savings of their serious illness care at home. For example, they're saying that for every dollar invested in this in their program, that there's um, three dollars of savings guaranteed. And they claim to reduce total medical costs by 20 percent, hospitalizations by 33 percent, ICU admissions by 38%, uh, the median length of time in hospice by 35.5 days, they increase 
increased amount of time in hospice, and they have 98% member satisfaction. So that's what they claim. Of course they do. And then finally, Humana has something called transitional concurrent care, and this one gives you curative care along with hospice. But the catch is, buried in the paperwork, that the curative care can last no more than 31 days. So you sign up thinking you're going to keep all your normal medical care, but you're going to get, in addition to that, some extra care through hospice which could be some of the in-home stuff that you might want. and But you only get your regular care for 31 days, and then you're just in hospice. So it sounds like they, they are partnering with all of these groups so that they can get people to enroll into hospice quicker because the quicker they get somebody in after they've targeted them because they have certain flags that come up, like you said, you know, COPD, congestive heart failure, um, then they get people into hospice quicker so that the person will die quicker. Therefore, they save money in the hospitals and doctor visits, and it's all about the money. So but the it artificial... It is all about the money. It is all it about is. the money, Marcia, but... Uh, some of the people they enroll, they don't want them to die quicker because if they're fairly healthy, they don't need a lot of services, and they're getting $200 a day or more for every day the person's enrolled in hospice. And, you know, so they might want that per- that person to live a long time. It's only when they start to get... They cost they- money. Right. Right, right. And that's kind of that's a lot of what Michelle says in you know in her book, because they have people in there. I think Miss Millie was one of the examples in her book that she had been on hospice for over <coughs> a year, and she wasn't costing any money, but they were making money off of her. But when she actually got sick, you know, instead of letting her go to the hospital, they made her go to hospice, which ultimately cost her her life because she had an infection and she was not given. IV antibiotics and she died. So yeah. it's you know people have become cash cows, right? And it's a medical cash cow. Yeah, you know, years ago, oh, I'm gonna say mm, maybe 25 years ago or 30 years ago, somewhere in that range. Most of our health insurance was what they call fee-for-service. So you went to the doctor, the doctor billed you, and then you submitted that claim to your health insurance, and they paid the doctor a certain amount. You know, there was an agreed-upon amount. Right. The usual customary and reasonable amount that the doctor would get. And so when when it was working that way, um, patients were seen as sources of revenue and providing them with services and treatments generated revenue. So that's what the incentive was. Now, there are a lot of concerns about the cost 
spiraling out of control and maybe people being given treatments they really didn't need and all that sort of thing. So then um, it changed so that they went to a, a system where the health insurance, health provider, the physician or whoever it was, usually um, the health care system or the company, would get so much per day or per month for each person that was enrolled. I'm not talking about hospital here. I'm just talking like office visits and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then the, the provider had to use that fund of money to pay for the office visits and the lab tests and so forth. So when that change occurred, then patients became a source of cost that reduced your profits. So that's kind of how it all started. Yeah, and I think we've seen over the years with hospice and with the medical field in general how it has changed drastically because it used to be I I remember oh I don't know 20 some years ago that they talked about the fountain of youth and how could they make people live longer live longer yeah we don't talk about that anymore no we don't talk about that and for this AI you know after you and I had talked and you you know I I started doing some research because that's that's just what I do. And I was looking at that. The White House actually partnered with AI research institutions to mine scientific literature to better understand COVID-19 and biotech companies and big tech players leveraged AI to understand the structure of the novel coronavirus to expedite the drug discovery. So Mm -hmm. they've been using this, and they also – um, it said that they went out and they had a list. They created a list of 100 most promising private AI co- 100 of the most promising private AI companies, and it represents this year's uh, private AI companies represent 12 countries. 12 countries. So we're not just talking about the United States. And we're ta- this is huge. This is coming down the pipe and this is what they're going to. You know, we know that um several years ago they started talking about robotics doing surgeries and colonoscopies and you know, getting involved in insulin, giving insulin so that you get the same amount of insulin. I'm sorry, I don't know about you, but I particularly do not care for a robot to be in charge or artificial intelligence to be in charge of something like that because, yes, they can make mistakes, but I just don't trust that type of technology. I'm not in the Jetson age, you know, where I think we can fly around and push a button and have our meals delivered to us. It's kind of like the cars that can drive themselves. Would you right. want to ride on the highway in a car that's driving itself? No. I wouldn't. 
Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. you know that it's not going to be able to adjust to something unanticipated, and that by unanticipated, I mean whoever wrote all the computer programs unanticipated it happens. Right. And I think it, you have no clue what's going to is the same kind of a thing. I mean, I don't want to see all our doctors replaced by robots and computers. Right. Right. And there is no humanity. Of course, a lot of the medical staff are in general in the world, we've lost a lot of our humanity. But having AI, there is no humanity in that. And the fact that they are talking about 12 countries doing this, and those 100 private AI companies, that was out of a pool of over 6,000 6,000 companies are into AI already, and they've picked 100 for, for whatever reason, but over 12 countries. This is big, and, and, you know, until you mentioned it and we started talking about it, you know, I hadn't given it much thought and didn't realize that it was getting as big as it is, but this is the wave of the future. And yeah. if we are not educated on it, if you don't ask the questions, Look it up. You know, if you've got Aspire now, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield, which is a huge federal conglomerate, and if you don't look and see that the health industries are pushing more towards saving money, and by mining all of this data, putting all the data into a database, to me it's like um, I was talking to someone earlier, you know, about the program, and they were, you know, kind of, well, how does this really relate? And I was trying to think of an example. So if you said that if you looked at the fact that somebody has certain characteristics or they have, um, you know, certain illness or, you know, complaints about something, and you look at the African male, they are more likely to have sickle cell anemia than most other people. So if you're looking at that person and you look at their gender and you look at their race, then, and they have a, a symptom, then it leads you to that. So you could say, oh, well, you know, because this is black male, then he may have, and he has this particular instance, you know, or, or issue, then he may have sickle cell anemia. And all of a sudden you get targeted because they're just looking at specific data. They're not talking to that patient and really finding right. out what their symptoms are. Right, and what's going on with them what else is going on with them in their lives and how all that, the interplay right. of all of that uh, right? in terms of medical decision-making. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've talked often about, you know, you were saying earlier about them saying you had dementia, and you had to basically prove that you didn't in order to get right. it off your record. Like you couldn't tell just talking to me? <laughs> right, right. But a lot of times a urinary tract infection can cause different dementia-type functions. Right. And, you know, they can cause a lot of issues. Well, if you're just taking the fact that somebody came in that doesn't know that it's, you know, 842 on the clock, they can't read the, the hands of the clock, and they can't remember that you gave them three words in the beginning, and, you know, maybe something else is going on in their their mind, and so they don't give you those three words, then do you look at that person, you know, if you're a computer, you're just entering the data, you're not using any human 
you know, um, gut feelings, and you know, that a doctor might, and then you could say that person has dementia. Clearly that person does not, but that's what the right. computer has picked up that they have. Right. So now you're tagged. Right. Yeah, so it's so. really important to look at your medical records, and if there's anything in there that you disagree with, get it corrected. Um, I would say another thing is, you know, if you get a phone call and you're offered over the phone certain health care services, like free in-home help or a, a cleaning woman for free or um, house calls or whatever it might be, you ask yourself, if that, if that's free, who's paying for it and why? Um, and and think about this. Do you want your doctor and nurses to be employed by your health insurance? No. And if they are, do they have cost savings quotas? Do they get bonuses for saving money? I would say probably they do. I mean, and and think about this one. How often have you ever had a doctor's office call you, a doctor you've never seen before, call you and ask you to use their services? It's just not done. It's not part of the medical culture. No. So I would and say I'd be very leery. Well, I think, it, you know, it goes back to somebody comes in and says, you know, we're offering this as a free service. It's not free. There, There is a catch to it, and right. you need to ask the questions. So, Marty, did we have somebody on the line that had a question to ask? Marty. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, uh, I thought we don't we had not yet. Okay, I, I thought, I thought I we did too, but they didn't. Re- but they okay. didn't respond when I questioned. So go ahead. Okay. All right. I just didn't know if we had somebody waiting on the line. So. Well, I think I think it's important to have um, an established relationship with a doctor that that you can trust. And if you were to get these calls, go right back to your doctor and say, okay, I'm getting these calls. What is this mm-hmm. about? What should I do? That's that's what I think. Right. I, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that because they're not just going to be calling you up. Um, the other thing is, you know, you were talking about do you want to have, you know, the insurance company in bed with your doctor's, and obviously the answer is no, but it also goes along with if you've ever been to your doctor's office and they have a um, one of these big pharma people that come in there with the latest and greatest medication, they come in, they give them samples of it, and there is a push for them to try to get their patients to try this new drug. You know, we got this right. new drug on the market. It, you know, it's it's great for blood pressure or help you lose weight or COPD or a great, you know, asthma inhaler. You know, whatever it is. And then if the doctor p- 
pushes that, they actually get paid money for mm-hmm. pushing the product of Big Pharma. And, right. you know, so if you're getting a, a new or if you're getting any drug, you really should be reading the pamphlet that comes with the medication when you pick it up. Um, I know a lot of people are not going to go research before you get a drug. You could ask the doctor that, but it behooves you to look to see what the side effects are. We see all the time on TV this new medication, and these are the potential side effects. And it doesn't mean everybody's going to get it, and it doesn't mean that drug is necessarily bad. But um, I will ask at this time for Marty to um, talk to us about a medication that they gave her for, I think it was asthma, but Cipro, Marty? Cipro and Levaquin. And yes. Levaquin and being the worst of the two. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it, you know, my and sister I had, had taken it like a day, but I want you to tell them the reactions that you had from that. And her reactions are not abnormal. A lot of people have this, no. but they don't know that this caused it. So go ahead. Well, Marty. what happened within two days of starting? Okay, of starting the medication. Uh, Levaquin. I had a severe sinus infection. I suffer from severe allergies, asthma, and chronic bronchitis. So when I get an infection, it's horrendous. And so at the time, I was in my mid-60s, and the doctor said, well, we're going to put you on this medication, Levaquin. And I said, what is that? She said, it's a really high-geared antibiotic. She said, we got to get that infection. The infection was so bad, my Nose had started bleeding. They had to go up in it and cauterize. And, yeah, so they, um, uh, I took the medication. I was so sick, I wasn't questioning anything. Within two days, my left wrist was so inflamed and swollen, it felt like the bone actually swelled. Whether it did or not, I couldn't tell you. It's what it felt like. Nothing could touch it. It was so painful. Nothing. Uh, Then I started on the third day getting what I call hemorrhages on the tops of my hands, up my arms. I also got these around my ankles. At various times over the years, I've gotten them on my neck, in my face, down my back. And these are not like a bruise. Um, they, They, you know how when a bruise fades, it turns all colors of the rainbow. These don't. They just, it's like your body just cleans them up and they fade out. But they come and they go. And so I started digging into this. And then about two weeks after starting Leviquin, they put me on Leviquin and Cipro together. And I, I can't tell you what kind of fool I felt like. And it got worse. So I quit everything. The whole time my doctor is telling me that nobody else has had a response like, well, that's all in your head. No, look at my wrist. It's bright red and it's three times its normal size. I can't move my hand. Well, you must have bumped it. No, I didn't. I researched Leviquin first. It's not to be prescribed to people over 60. It is not to be prescribed in coordination with prednisone and ibuprofen because it can become fatal quite quickly. All three of those prescriptions were handed to me at once. Now, I can't take prednisone. It's on a do-not-administer list. And I use aspirin if I take anything. When I looked this up, and I was on the manufacturer's page, and it said not to be prescribed to people over 60 and not with these other two medications, I thought, they're trying to kill me. 
I went back to the doctor with this information. And I said, you did everything they said don't do. You prescribed this up. She said, oh, we do it all the time and nobody complains. And I said, there's a difference between nobody complains and you don't tell them their complaint is associated with that medication. And conversely, dead people don't say a whole lot, do they? Mm-hmm. And But even these years later, I still get the hemorrhages. I can tell that, and Levaquin never leaves your body. It originally was designed to fight the infection caused by chemotherapy. It is a chemo-based drug. It never leaves your body. And I still go through times where my joints, my wrists and ankles in particular, are extremely painful. They're swollen. Um, There's things that go along with this. I get an odd taste in my mouth. My vision blurs for about 24 hours, and then it moves on. But this just keeps going. Like I say, it's a chemo drug, actually. And what I found out about it was that added to chemotherapy, people were dying far faster than the projected profits. So they went to the FDA and paid a $5 million fast-track fee and put it out as a general antibiotic. It is anything but. Um, and it doesn't fix nothing. And um, it, I think it was in 2017, they were forced to pull it off the market. They came back out with it in 2019 and were forced to pull it again. And um, But it is a dangerous, dangerous drug. And my doctor absolutely flew mad at me for bringing in documentation for what I was saying right from the manufacturer's page. And but this stuff is, is horrendous, but they give it to seniors all the time, even though it says don't do that. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Did you switch doctors after that? Yes, I did, <laughs> in a big <laughs> hurry. And, uh, yeah, the, see, and the problem with me when it comes to doctors is this. I don't have diabetes. I don't have high blood pressure. I don't have heart disease. And I've been Mm -hmm. smoking for 60 years. And Mm -hmm. they just can't figure out why that is. And so the the other approach is, well, we're going to put you on some preventatives so you don't get that. No, you're not. No, I don't have it. I'm doing well on my own. Or the other response is, well, how do you account for that? Like I did something wrong. And I always say, I did what you told me to do. You know, you said, don't eat this, don't do that. I didn't, other than I smoke. Well, well, are you sure those tests were right? Well, I didn't run them myself, no, but they've been consistent. So, you know, you get this whole thing, but that thing you were talking about, about them getting these kickbacks off of these medications prescribing, this is exactly what it is. Um, again, at this same clinic, she's going by a program that tells her, you know, if I got a sore toe, uh, to, to prescribe this. But it's all kickbacks to the the medical or the pharmaceutical industry for prescribing those medications, whether you need them or not. So, you know, you, you're just kind of a sitting doctor. I don't go to the doctor anymore unless I literally have to crawl in there or come in on a stretcher. I just won't go. And uh, I think it's dangerous, personally, but that's just me. Well, I'll I think I'm now, more, more of us. Oh, no, that's fine, Marty. I ask, I ask. 
Um, but I just wanted to point out that, you know, some of the drugs are not safe, and yet they're touting they are. And we heard mm-hmm. hospice was safe, and, and it was at one time, and all hospices are not bad. The ones that we've run across are. But it's the same thing with this AI, artificial intelligence now. This is something new, and we're starting to hear more and more about it, and it is not necessarily what is best and healthiest for the people. And certainly, let me say, the common or the average folk, because we're not the ones that, you know, have all this money that could throw at, you know, like if you decide you need a body part or an organ, you know, people throw money at it and they go to China and sadly they can get, you know, whatever they need over there because they have money. So, again, money talks, but if you're one of the common folk, like most of us are, then if artificial intelligence comes in and decides that you are going to cost more money over the years, and, you know, let's face it, most people after 65 don't work, and so you are not a contributing person. You are just taking resources, and if you're on Medicare or Medicaid, you are expending resources. You're not putting anything in now. They discount the fact that you put in for the time that you say if you started working when you were 16 or 18, whatever it is, that you put in all of those years until you did retire. They're not looking at that. You are costing too much money now. And unless you've got deep pockets, you are expendable. Well, and I would just say with the AI, it can be used for good purposes and probably improve the accuracy of some things like uh, reading CAT scans and uh, mammograms and whatever, Uh, or it can be used for bad purposes. You know, Mm -hmm. it depends on who's using it and what they're orientation is as to how it gets used. Correct, correct. And, and that's the, the thing about it is a lot of times when you come up with new procedures and you know, new medication, new anything, in, in some cases it is a really good thing. And, you know, obviously the scientists, you know, in the healthcare industry, when they come up with some stuff, sometimes it is really, really good stuff. But... Sometimes it can be used for really, really bad purposes, mm-hmm. and it doesn't necessarily mean that um, it, that it's going to be good. And so you have to do your research. That's you know, knowledge is power. I say that all the time. Right. And if you're not researching, you're not protecting yourself or your other, you know, your loved ones. Right. And it, back, to Sarah, what you were talking about, if um, you know, Advantage, the Advantage plan and the Medicare and people calling you up. When my dad moved in with us in 2017, he was 89 years old, and they kept talking about, you know, vision and dental and, you know, you can get this extra part, you know, in Medicare. So I called them to ask them because they keep saying free service. You could get this free service. And I thought, okay, you know, my dad had macular degeneration, and, you know, I knew that he was going to need some dental procedures done, teeth and whatnot. So I contacted them. 
I told him how old he was. They told me he didn't qualify. <laughs> so I was like, okay, you know, um, just like I'm, that, I'm glad uh, he didn't. But, you know, I mean, I just kept him off of as many radars as I could. And, you know, I got to the point when we went to the doctor, you know, he would joke and, and say, you know, things that he thought were silly. But, you know, I had to caution him you can't talk to these people like that because, it, you know, if you say some things, it sounds like you're off, you know, you're a little bit mm-hmm. odd. And they're going to say that you have issue, mental issues and I can't protect you if they start coming after you and trying to mm-hmm. put you somewhere and taking guardianship of you. And I had listened to Marty's shows so many times that, I was fearful of somebody trying to guardianize my dad. And so, you know, I, I, would, I did a lot of talking with the doctor for him in some cases when we went to a new doctor because they would ask questions that, you know, do you have a living will? And I'm, why are you asking that? We're, we're here to have his ears cleaned out. You don't need to know anything about his, his will, if he has or not. That's not your business. But... They would ask those type questions, and you know, you don't have to well, ask. They, you don't have to answer questions. They can get Some paid a little extra if they ask those questions by Medicare. Well, that might be, but um, they still got can kind I, of a really snippy reply. Mm-hmm. Can I add something yes. in here, Marcia? One Absolutely. of the things I caution people. About about and um, for your guest too, if she could add to this, is when you go to the doctor past the age 60 in particular, you can go in there, like say me with my sinus infection, and they before you see the doctor, they start handing you questionnaires. Have you felt sad one day, two days, five days in a row? Do you ever feel like suicide? Do you think life's worth giving? And it's all these questions that are, gives you a mathematical score. And that score dictates, I saw this on a computer screen at the doctor's office, which medications are to be prescribed. There are, we call them trap questions. They're like these, and the other thing is these answering these questions can be used uh, to put you in a very, very bad position and have you determined to be incompetent or mentally compromised, uh, you know, severely depressed, suicidal, and the game is on at that point. Um, when you go to the doctor and they start asking you all these questions, uh, one questionnaire, you know, uh, do you live alone? Who lives with you? How long have you lived there? Do you own any guns? Where are they located? And I just handed it back. I said, I don't answer questions like these. Well, you have to, to see the doctor. I said, I'm not here. Why? I said, why, is she a gun expert? Well, no, but, but we, we need these answers. I said, no. I'm here for a sinus infection. Why don't we address the issue that I'm here for? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. these are just, I'm not answering them. But these are what we call trap questions, and I caution people all the time, do not answer those questions. Right. Don't draw a clock for them. You know, don't play them. I'm going to give you three words, and then I'm going to talk to you, and then you tell me what the three words are. That's supposed to test your short-term memory. No, it doesn't. Um, mm-hmm. it, there's all sorts of, but these are what we call trap questions. But when I found out about the programs being fed into the computer and all of your complaints or what they claim are your complaints, what their assessment is of you, everything, 
and it prints out every possible diagnosis, medication, treatment, and therapy that can possibly be applied to that, and it's all tied to the bottom line. I actually saw this thing work. It was terrifying at how quickly this program came up with the best possible profit if you did this diagnosis. And if you prescribe wow. these medications, if you did these treatments, um, it, it's all a game. It isn't about health care anymore, in my estimation. It's about well, money you know, and your, com- your commodity. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'll I be quiet now, Marsha. I promise. I recently that one in five doctors said they're going to retire. They're leaving. All the older doctors are leaving. They're just leaving. Right, because it's not about health care, just like Marty said. Yeah. It's about the bottom figure. How much money can they make? And the doctors who really care about their patients, they don't want to play this game. I know. They're, they want to take care of people. That's what they signed up for. They want to take care of people. And it's like the um, Physicians for Compassion um, education and training that we had on Dr. Toffler a couple of weeks. You know him. I think he works right. with you guys. Is on your board, and you know he's a doctor. He he wants to take care of people, and right. you know so many of those are they are leaving because they don't want to be a part of this. Yeah, and, and I have a friend that worked in a she worked in the emergency department, and then later in the hospital as a hospitalist. She's a doctor. And uh, she lost her job because she wasn't referring patients to hospice fast enough. Yeah. That's crazy. I know. Sad. Were they, I mean, sad. And, and the thing is, they talk about inter-enrolling them earlier. Were these patients, you know, at the end of their life? I don't or know. I mean, I didn't ask they were, for any yeah, specifics. But to me, because you have COPD or because you have congestive heart failure, and it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that you have a – to me, you should not be in hospice unless you have a week or, you know, two to live right. and, and you're in – you know. I mean, I knew when my dad was passing, and I knew it a week before, I mean, the signs were there, and I knew it, and I knew I couldn't stop it, but I knew that hospice was not going to come in and make the last days of his life miserable and that he was going to be right here at home in the comfort of his home, surrounded by, you know, myself and my husband who love him, and we weren't going to take him there. But if you put somebody in hospice for six months out, you don't know that they have six months to live. Right. You, no, you can't possibly know that. I agree. I, I, Nobody knows. It, it, I mean, it, it, no. until they're in the active phase of dying, you can't be sure of anything. Exactly. Exactly. And my having mother had my mother had congestive heart failure, and she lived for ten years after the diagnosis in her own home managing her own affairs. Right. And there's medication for it that keeps you alive and living a good life. Right. 
Yeah, if it's well managed, you don't seem different than anyone else, really. No, no, right. I mean, you could be short of breath. I think, you know, my mom had that too, and she would be, you know, short of breath. But, you know, she still lived, you know, she was still a happy, positive, upbeat woman who loved life and loved her kids, loved her, you know, just loved living. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they decided that it it was her time. Um, Medtronic is another name that kept coming up when I was doing some research. Did you see anything on them? No, I didn't look into them. So what's that all about? Well, they talked about, um, they say it's not sci-fi, it's AI, and they just talk about it playing a major role in your life and, you know, what all it does. And, you know, and, and true, we have Siri and Alexa and, you know, Google, and that's all part of the AI generation. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's all connected and we're getting that way. But but if you think about your telephone, you know, your cell phone, everybody's got a cell phone which has tracking on it so everybody knows where you are. Your cars now have the ability to, you know, my car, you know, gives me a beep beep if I'm, you know, a little bit over the line or, you know, sway in a little bit. And, and sometimes I do it on purpose because we have potholes here. And I sway to get out of the pothole. Looking, of course, to make sure there's not another car in the other lane, and it'll start beeping at me. Or, you know, when the car in front of me moves, it tells me the car in front of me has moved. So we have all of this ability, and your car insurance can track what you're doing in your car and whether you're going too fast, and then they can um, connect that that to what your rates are going to be. Yeah. I'm sorry? I said adjust your premiums, but you said wait, so it's the same thing. Right, exactly. So we are already in a world of artificial intelligence. We just aren't aware, many of us are not aware that that's what it is, and now it's, and I don't think this is new, right, Sarah? I think that the artificial intelligence involved with health care it's getting deeper, but I think that it's been ongoing because they had the um, insulin and they've already got, you know, robotic assisted surgery with, you know, colonoscopies, you know, and looking to see if they find polyps. And, right. you know, they're already doing that. And they actually on this website that I was looking at from Medtronics is they compare it to Amazon, if you can believe that. They talk about how easy it is to order an item from Amazon. You do a few click buttons, and the package arrives here the next day. And they're saying that patients expect health care to deliver the similar benefits that technology is bringing to other parts of our life. And I don't believe that that's true because I believe that people want it to be the human. that you know They want to go to a doctor who cares and who says, you know, seems genuine, you know, how how are you feeling and, you know. Right. You the know, talks to you. Is, the other thing is that I think the diagnostic process that a doctor goes through, um, they need some time to think. 
you know, not make these split-second decisions. If you have time, I can tell you another horror story about myself. (laughs) Yeah, go ahead. You've got time. It kind of illustrates a point I'm trying to make, and I don't think a, a machine could ever do this. So I have a lot of seasonal allergies, and I take allergy pills. And mm, this is about like 10 years ago. I don't know what happened to me, but I got like I could have a hard time breathing, and I was very weak. I could hardly make it out to the mailbox and back. And um, I was diagnosed with COPD. Um, I was diagnosed with sleep apnea. I was put on some drugs, I don't even remember what they were, that I couldn't remember anything. And so I'd take, like, all my records, medical records and other records, around with me in a bag so I could look things up. (laughs) And it, it was sad. It was sad. It was really bad. Well... My doctor kept digging, 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 trying to figure out what was going on, sending me to different specialists. So I'm sure I would have triggered the AI for sure. But um, it turned out that the pills I was taking for my my hay fever, and I have spring allergies, so it's not just in the fall, um, Mm -hmm. had stopped working. So... They switched me to a different allergy pill, and everything cleared up. But it took two years to figure that out. Three years? Two years. Oh, two Two years? Yeah. Wow. And, you know, tons of tests and whatever. I I mean, it's really obvious once you figure it out, but it wasn't obvious. Mm -hmm. And they had they had put down on your records that you have COPD, which right. is one of the qualifying things now to right. enroll somebody into hospice. Right, but that's not in you know? anymore. And you didn't have you couldn't remember things, so maybe you had dementia. No wonder they said you had dementia. <laughs> right. Yeah, but so that, that was after all this was cleared up. So yeah, the only reason but, they but did there, that is she hit the wrong key on the keyboard. Right. But, I mean, there are things that can cause other symptoms that does not necessarily mean that that's what's wrong with you. But AI is only going to go based on, it doesn't go based on a gut feel or, you know, talking to the patient and, you know, getting in, gathering information. Knowledge and experience to bear on a situation. Right. Right. I mean, think about it. Okay, just think about this. This just went through my head. If you're a hypochondriac and you come in there and you say, you know, I've got this, 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 and this, AI is just going to take all that information and it's just going to be put into your records that you have this. And if you're talking to a doctor, your doctor can look at you and there's certain, you know, physical symptoms, obviously, but Typically, I think, and especially if you went to the same doctor and over and over again, and you're always going in with some kind of chronic condition, and you got this, this, he's going to be able to tell that you're a hypochondriac. 
that you don't yeah. have this disease and all these illnesses, but you know, maybe you're just looking for attention and maybe you, you need a therapist instead of a you know, physical doctor. But mm-hmm. an AI catching that data, putting that data into a database, it's going to have you on death's door because obviously you're chronic and, you know, you've got two weeks to live. Right. right. There's there's a danger in it. There are good things that are going to come out from this, you know, like with the insulin um, by detecting earlier, there's um, Medtronic has a genius that they say is fighting cancer, correctal, um, colorectal cancer is highly treatable if it's detected earlier, but the problem is that they don't detect it earlier. So now they have an intelligent um, endoscopy module that they use. So that's a good thing, and there are good things to it. And I don't think Sarah and I are telling you that you should poo-poo all of it, but you just should be aware that there are risks to this new technology. It's right. And you want you want your doctor to be in charge. In other words, he gets the information, he or she, and that in conjunction with his knowledge of you and his um, experience and skills or hers um, comes to some conclusions and makes the decisions, okay, about what options are available to you, discusses that with you. You don't want a machine just deciding. That's right, and you want choices. And if you're talking to a doctor, I, I know I, I have an excellent doctor. I'm, I'm very, very pleased with my doctor. But he will, you know, talk to me. Well, you know, you could do this or you could do this. Right. You know, you, they give you options. And, and one might be, you know, something, you know, you could go on medication for this or you could, you know, I mean, I don't know, have another procedure done or something. So mm-hmm. you could either be very conservative or you could be very far out. I don't know what the opposite of very liberal, I guess, on what your prognosis would be. But a doctor explains that to you and gives you options. You have choices. An AI right. is going to decide that you should do this right. because it's only going by the data, like you said, Garbage in, garbage out. So it's going by the data that's put in by humans and making a determination. Yeah. And and to track how long you're going to live, you said Aspire does that? Yeah, and they they bragged in these articles about, you know, that how accurate it was and that could, they could identify people who had three months left or a month left or a week left. And, you know, it's like, Really? You know, I find that hard to believe, but. Well, not if you're going to drug them to death. If you're going to euthanize well, them, right. you know, hospice you knows. when it happens, sure. Right. But. Right. And the fact that they are linking this so closely to hospice concerns me and palliative care. So it's like, um, 
it's like everybody's getting a piece of the pie, and after they've done all these procedures and tests and given you this medication and made all this money off of you, then, okay, well, that portion of it is done, and now we're going to turn you over to palliative care and hospice, and then they're mm-hmm. going to make all their money over you. Yeah. So um, I just I wanted to open it up if anybody that's listening has a question or a comment that they want to make. We don't have anyone yet, Marcia. We've got a lot okay. of listeners, a lot of listeners, well, but nobody's flagging. I figure if I talk. ask May them. I say, yeah, if if you are wanting to speak to Marcia and her guest, dial the call-in number, 917-388-4520, and hit number one immediately when the system answers. That will flag me that you want to speak. So 917-388-4520 and hit number one. So if they're listening now, could they hit one and then ask a question, or would they need to hang up and call quickly back in? They'll they'll need to hang up and call back in. Okay. So anybody that's listening, if you hang up and you call back in, hit one, and then you can ask me or Sarah a question. Or grammatically correct is you may ask Sarah or me a question. (laughs) So... For, for I the, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I did. I had a um, a dad and a sister who constantly felt the need to correct me on my English grammar, so I do it myself. So, um, is there any, anything else that you want to add, Sarah? While we're uh, no, I think we've covered time. it pretty. You did a good job, Marsha. Uh, well, thank you. you. You brought this. You brought the topic to, you know, to the discussion, and then I just, once you said this is what you're going to talk about, then I just started going in and doing some research on it because I'm like, oh, that's new to me. So right. uh, I just figured yeah, that, I and I, I learned a lot something. from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I learned a lot from you. Um one of the things that um, here, they were talking about real-time response, like measuring blood oxygen, oxygen saturation, respiration, and heart rate, and the sensors. And they stated that um, they have implantable devices that they use. It's a sensor that collects data to adjust uh, what each patient needs, like, you know, kind of like the pacemaker. Um, right. Or I guess insulin, you know, where they could just detect whatever is needed. And it's like my father had a pacemaker, and it, you know, to my knowledge, um, it, it didn't trigger. But you should be able to. We didn't. We went into the doctor and had the doctor check it. But they, they had said there was a way to call in with your cell phone, and to do a check on his pacemaker that I could actually do with my cell phone. And I I wondered if, you know, they have the ability to, you know, have a pacemaker in, then, and you could do it with the phone, could you not trigger that to shock or whatever it is that they do? So, you know, if I have something electronic in my body and somebody else has access to it, or can they not do things to me that I wouldn't want done to me? 
because you, you've Anything given somebody else possible, control. I, right? What I was thinking is, you know, I mean, you can buy a, a pulse approximate. I can't say that word. Right. But you, you can buy those and check your pulse and your oxygen saturation and so on. You don't need to have something implanted to do that. And if you mm-hmm. had something implanted, it would be constantly sending information. You know, could be right. constantly sending information. Right. I don't know. And you wouldn't really know what that's being used for or who's using it. it what you're, what all you're connected to. Um I had, you know, the Garmin devices that are very, very popular, you know, to keep up with your steps, to make you step more, you know, keep up with your heart mm-hmm. rate. And, and that's all well and good. Um, I had one of those, you know, it's like a, it, the watch that you wear. And I mean to tell you, honestly, um, after, and I had been wearing it for quite some time, but it started to hurt my wrist. And I don't mean like necessarily rubbing you know, rubbing around or anything, but I just started having pains in my wrist. I don't know. And I don't know what it was, but I took it off, and then the pains in my wrist just stopped. So I'm not sure what it was, how that could cause that. I don't know if it's happened to anybody else. Um, I'd be curious if it has, but it really, really hurt my wrist. So, you know, like the... um, uh, you know, like, I don't know, like a, a a bruise or just, you know, it was a pain. It was a sharp pain yeah. in my wrist. I took it off, and I quit having issues with that. So I don't wear a Garmin or any of that type of device that tracks what I'm doing, not because I care yeah, for any. I, I mean, either. I have Google throughout my house. I am sure that if Google is listening, artificial intelligence is listening, they, you know, kind of know where I stand politically. They know that I'm incredibly pro-life. <laughs> And they hear my radio shows, and they, you know, they hear me carrying on sometimes and arguing with the news and, and watching my soap operas. I don't care. There's nothing that I'm saying or doing that is a big surprise or big secret. And uh, you know, listen well, away. I can mention one last thing. I just remembered. Um, April 16th is National Healthcare Decisions Day. And the idea is that if you don't have it, you should get a health care power of attorney and complete it. Um, and Euthanasia Prevention Coalition USA is rolling out uh, a life-protecting health care power of attorney uh, for this year's uh, health care decisions day. And it's available now on our website. We do ask for a small donation uh, in exchange for it. And we have a document that um, has some very good life-protecting provisions in it. And also um, the main document, the multi-state document, actually uh, has all the witnessing and signing um, requirements that meets the requirements of 46 of the 50 states. Wow. Um, Tell them exactly what your URL is. Okay. epc-usa.org. 
And we'll repeat this that. document is available on the resources page. Okay, so that was epc-usa.org. Right. Yeah, .org. And that, that is the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition, and this is on the United States side. Right. So, and, you know, now you also work on legislative bills, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Are there any that we should be aware of that are coming up? Uh, we uh, No. I We've okay. heard that they might start moving in New York, and I think Massachusetts is probably the one where we think the most is going to happen and, and the biggest fight. We just won... Um, a very difficult uh, situation in Connecticut just in the last two days. Oh, but, good. Uh, yeah, so it, it got to the right committee, and they used some kind of a parliamentary procedure so that only um, nine people out of 37 could vote on the bill, and they voted it down five to four. Oh, okay. Um, if you think about it, or I'll look look it up so I can post it in our Facebook group. Um, for those listening who may not be aware, we have a Facebook group called Murdered by Hospice, and it was um, founded by Liz Eisner um, after her husband was murdered by hospice, and she started the group. And we have, you know, advocates on there who are willing to listen to people, they understand what they can empathize with you. And, you know, we post a lot of good articles out there trying to educate people and just help them. So uh, lots of different things. So I'll have to look that up, Sarah, in Connecticut, and post that in the group. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on tonight and sharing some information with us. Uh, a lot of stuff I learned I never a heard lot about. from you and Marty, actually, so I really appreciate this. Okay, good, good. And we, we've learned an awful lot from you. So to our um, listeners out there, we appreciate you calling in and coming in on the Internet and listening to us, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks. So good night, Sarah. Good night, Marty. Good night. And good night, everybody else. All right. Talk to you later. Take care.